Well, when I was, uh, when I was 12 years old, I had a, a good friend. His name was Randy Brown, and Randy and I um, did a lot together. We, uh, we explored lots of things, and uh, we were just real special friends. Uh, we always thought of each other as family. I have uh, three brothers, and Randy had two, and also a couple of sisters. Uh, but we did everything together. We, um, we used to uh, go behind his home. He lived on a, a big field. We'd go behind his home, and we would hunt rat snakes and box turtles and try our best. To, yeah, those, that kind of stuff freaks me out today. But anyway, uh, but we would go, and we'd find those, and we'd capture them, and we would uh, you know, keep them as pets and things like that. We would uh, go on uh, Halloween, and he would come to my house because I lived in the neighborhood. He lived on several acres of land, so he didn't really have houses to trick-or-treat with. We'd trick-or-treat together. And, um, you know, we just did, just did some uh, really, really cool things together. We'd go down to the boys' club. Remember back when they had the boys' clubs? We went down to the boys' clubs and we played carpet ball while our parents were at work, and that kept us out of trouble on most of those instances. And uh, I remember one time we actually did a, a public service campaign. Uh, neither he or I liked smokers at that time as kids because we just thought that they were throwing their cigarettes everywhere. And that was kind of back in those days in the uh, early 70s when people just kind of threw their trash everywhere. Do you remember that? And uh, it's not like today where we keep things clean. So we actually enacted a, a campaign to remove all the cigarette uh, stuff that we found on my neighborhood streets. And we called it uh, Pick Your Butts Off the Street Campaign. <laughs> And uh, it actually had some pretty good impact, and, and our neighborhood was excited that, that we did that. Uh, but the day came that we wanted to cement our relationship with each other. I know that sounds kind of strange, but, but, you know, that whole thing about what guys do, like blood brothers. Do you remember those days of blood brothers and blood sisters? And I don't remember who had the idea, but it just sounded like a, a novel idea for us to do together. And um, I went and took one of my mom's sewing needles, and Randy lifted his dad's butane lighter from, uh, from its special place. And we, we ran out into the woods, and we decided we were going to do this thing. And we knew that sterilization was very important, even in those days. So we took the needle with a butane lighter, and we fired it up and heated it up. And we stuck out our right forefingers, uh, each to that. We made some pledges together that we'd always be there to help each other through school or sports or whatever it would be. If one of us needed the other one, we'd be sure to be there because we were deep, deep friends. So the time came and the courage, and I pricked my finger, and Randy spat on the needle and wiped it off, and he pricked his finger, and we kind of, well, that's what you did back then. I mean, come on. <laughs> Don't say, ooh, gross. I mean, that's what you did. And we put our fingers together, and, and kind of in a 12-year-old way, we, we just imagined that uh, our bloods were transferring to each other, and we had this special bond. Now, um, blood today, a lot, of, a lot of time and effort goes into making sure that blood is clean and that we're taking proper care of things. And uh, for a long time, you know, you might think that blood is more of a contagion than anything else. And, um, you know, the Red Cross would say, though, that there's a relational aspect to blood, that, that we must be relational with each other, that we must have someone who's willing to donate blood so that someone who's in need of blood can actually have that and survive. So, so there's a relational piece, and we see that that's kind of more important than the contagion piece. And that's why I think we go the extra mile uh, to help each other uh, in our times of needs in, in those kinds of things. I remember when I was... Um, in seminary, I, I took a trip to the Perkins Library uh, on the campus of Duke University. I went to the rare book room. That was one of my favorite places to go because you had to put on those white gloves when you're looking at these books. And these are some books that were centuries old. And, and I used to love just going and pouring a couple of hours in there. And I remember 
one book in particular that I saw, and uh, the, the title of the book had been rubbed off because of the age of the book and how often it had been handled. But there was still a, an image that was on there, and it was like two arms that were bent like this, like showing strength, and there was one here and one on the other side, so they were facing each other. And underneath was a cup, and it had drawn coming out of both arms uh, blood that was coming up like this and, and going into the cup. And uh, in that, it was obviously a book on blood covenant. And I decided I would read about that a little bit because I was really fascinated as I was uh, doing some extensive work on the sacrament. And, and one of the th stories that I read in there was about uh, two men who made their cause known that they wanted to become deeper involved in a family relationship. They weren't uh, biologically related, but they wanted to find a way to do that. And in the ancient world, you would do that through the course of blood and sharing of blood. And so what the book was outlining was that they made their intentions public uh, out in the square, and one of the men would take a knife and he would cut open a vein on the other person's um, uh, arm, and as the blood would come, he'd put a quill in it, and he would drink the blood of the person he was becoming a blood brother with. And then they would swap roles, and the other one would do that. Then they would take the knife, and they would smear the knife on a covenant piece of paperwork, and they would fold it up into about a one-by-one-by-one-by-one-inch uh, square, and they would put it into a sewn leather amulet that they would wear around their necks. And that was a reminder to them of this commitment that they made to each other and the importance of what the blood covenant uh, was truly all about. So there's just something about this mystery of the importance of blood and, and what blood means, and, and especially as Christians, as we look at the symbolism of that. And, and, and I'm intrigued by it in a sense that I think that for most of us that that, that, that um, uh, call to understand blood and covenant comes from deep within us, and that we find ourselves searching and yearning for that, and, and we do that as we study the Scriptures, and we see all throughout our holy scriptures, um, where blood has come into place. A couple of places that we see in the Genesis story, uh, Cain kills his brother Abel, and the scripture says that his brother's blood cried out from the ground um, in, in agony of that. And we know that when, when Noah finished his journey on the ark, and he had gone through that uh, exhaustive journey as he's getting his sea legs back on ground, so to speak, that Noah offers a blood offering to God as a way of thanksgiving. Um, Abraham, we, we know about uh, his offering. He offered many times the blood of animals as a way and context of showing his love for God. And, and if you look biblically, the examples are endless. But this morning, I, I want to talk about a different kind of blood sacrifice. I want to talk about one that um, comes in the form of a meal. And as you see here, we have grapes, and we know that there's bread that's here as well. And so there's this meal that has been prepared uh, that is going to have a significant difference or, di or make a significant difference in the lives of not only those who started that, but us today and generations and a lifetime of Christians that come after us. For the Jewish community, sharing a meal was really important, and it was in the meal that it was a way of displaying what's called hospitality. Now, hospitality isn't just like, hey, I threw a great party, come there, or whatever. It was that you actually invited someone into your home, and when you invited them into your home, you treated them better than your family. And, and we know in our Hebrew roots in our communities that, that the love of family is extremely important, 
and community that's built on that. So you can imagine as they gathered for this meal, the importance of that. Now, for us in the 21st century, it's kind of hard for us to put those pieces together. If we can have a meal with our extended family or beloved ones maybe once a month, we, we might be lucky because uh, the world in, in our life is just so out of control and fast. Uh, we find ourselves doing fast foods a lot. We have Uber deliver our meals, uh, whatever the case may be. So, so we've kind of lost sight of the significance of this community. But what we learn about the table, especially in the Judean times, was the significance of feasting together produced things such as peace, fruitfulness, trust, love, forgiveness, and brotherhood and sisterhood. And it was at the table that some significant things really happened. Now, Mark, in his gospel, um, goes to a place where he says that, that the meal was important, but Mark doesn't really um, say much more than just this, that the meal was important not just because it was Jesus' last, but Mark says, but because Jesus did something memorable. So think about that. It wasn't that it was the Last Supper. I mean, we think about the Last Supper, but Mark says that it's memorable because Jesus did something memorable. So Jesus connects the elements of, of the meal to his coming, suffering, and death. And he begins to use an object lesson as he teaches. He anticipates his coming death, and he knows that his death is going to be violent. And we look at the imagery of breaking bread and pouring out uh, uh, wine as, a, as an illustration of blood being poured out. And Jesus says that this meal describes his atoning death. So I want you to just uh, imagine with me for a moment this morning. I want you to imagine that it's 2,000 years in the past. And I want you to imagine that, that you have joined me and we are together and we have gone into a small room to partake in a Passover meal. And we've gathered there with our closest friends and, they are, and, and the host has already prepared the room with everything that is needed. And as we enter into that room, we see that the table has already been prepared. And the feast is a reminder for us of the liberation of what God has done for his people, that God has liberated his people from captivity and sin, and God has put them uh, onto a new way and has abolished slavery and has moved them into a new way of coming, so to speak. So the meal was coming to an end, and several glasses of wine later, Jesus, our host, utters these words. You've no idea how much I've looked forward to eating this Passover meal with you before I enter my time of suffering. Listen closely. It's the last one that I'm going to eat and until we all eat it together in the kingdom of God. So it, that statement really brings about some confusion because the host always had the same line. And as you uh, attended a Passover meal, you would know these lines from early childhood to adulthood to the advanced ages. You would know exactly what those words are. But for some reason, Jesus did not say the words that were there, but all of a sudden, something else was happening. Instead of talking about the bread that the forefathers ate and the liberation of slavery from Egypt and the cup of life and the cup of freedom and all of that, Jesus has gone on to a different course. And he's drawing attention to the significance and he wants them to remember that this meal is special. 
He goes on to say, this is my body given for you. Eat it in my memory. Now imagine for a second, you're staring at Jesus. You're confused. What in the world is he doing? He's gone over the top this time. I mean, when he turned over the money changers tables, when when he did did miracles, when he did all these things, but now Jesus has gone too far. And what he is saying isn't what's supposed to be said. So now we're wondering, is he even all there tonight? And what is it that he's saying and why? And and how could it be that, that Jesus' words, this is my body, and what does it mean by his saying, do this in remembrance of me? So you begin to wonder, all those glasses of wine that we've had, is it starting to take effect? Are you feeling the buzz from the wine? Is this the second glass of wine? Is this the third glass of wine? Is this the fourth glass of wine? Uh, The Passover meal involves a lot of wine, but nevertheless, you recall clearly the words from Jesus' mouth, this cup is the new covenant written in my blood, blood poured out for you, blood poured out for you. Now, let me ask you a question this morning, and I want you to reflect on the truth of the question I'm asking When you come to the Lord's table, when we celebrate communion, does it transform your life? Do you come understanding what this table represents? Or are you bothered that that of cleanliness laws or things, are those the things going through your minds? And or are you just kind of, well, it's just something we do in the church? This table should shock you. It should shock you in a sense for what it represents the body of Christ, and the blood of Christ, broken and poured, broken and poured out for you and for me. So when we come to the table, it shouldn't be something that we do nonchalantly. It shouldn't be something that we just, oh, hey, it's communion Sunday. I might not go to church today because you know it's communion Sunday. But it really needs to be something we understand. And the table is the central part of what this represents. Yes, it's probably juice from Publix. Yes, it's probably bread from from the same bakery. But something happens when Christ is here. And we call it a transformation, so to speak, that the presence, the real presence of Jesus Christ is here. He's manifested his presence here with us. And he comes in the way of the symbols of bread and of juice. I love it when the children come to take communion. And I love it when they come, and and especially when the person who's holding the cup looks the child in the face and says, this is the blood of Christ for you. And most of those little kids go, ew, or yuck. You know, so, so that's why I'm saying we should be shocked. We should be shocked by what's happening at this table and the significance of what that means. You know, the real thing happened on a hill in Jerusalem. The real thing happened when the Lord himself gave his life for you and me and shed his blood that we are bound to God in a whole new way. By the giving of his blood, something changed. There wasn't a quill inserted in a vein like some of the ancient world used to do. There were no papers splattered with blood. There were no contracts written down. The only thing that was written that day was over Jesus' head, which said, this is Jesus king of the Jews. But when it's all over, though, this table 
transforms the whole world. A new covenant was in fact, it was a, a covenant whereby God agreed to do everything. There would no longer be where the believer had to come to God, but God comes to the believer. That there were no longer any barriers between the believer and God. God has obliterated those barriers and says that the path to me is one that is open. You can come, and I am here, and I'm meeting you. And all God wants humanity to do is to know about his love. And that's why this meal is so important. And that's why God said here, as he came in the form of Jesus Christ and said, I'm giving myself for you that you might have life in me. Now, I think it's important that that night that Judas Iscariot was there. I believe that. I, I believe it's important. Knowing what Ju Judas would do, Jesus didn't bar him from the table. In fact, Jesus ate from the same dish that Judas ate. And it was Judas who excused himself from the table. So he was included up until that moment when he excused himself to leave. But when Jesus holds up the cup and he offers it as a fluid of forgiveness, he's not talking about a people with a short list of sins. He's talking about people like you and me, where the list is really long. That night, specifically, he was talking about people who would deny him. He was talking about people who would uh, betray him. He was talking about people who would run to the other ends of the earth for fear of their own life because they followed him. And the people that were supposed to be his best friends on earth turned out to be the biggest bag of scoundrels that the world had ever seen. And yet Jesus says, I know who you are. I know you're not perfect. I know that you fall short from the means of grace. I know that you're not innocent of the blood in this cup, and I, and I won't let it be, become between us. But look here, he says, I'm blessing it. I make it my gift to you. Let it mean life to you, not death. Let my life become your life, Jesus says, through the blood of this covenant. So in this table, God is taking us somewhere. He's taking us on a journey. He's taking us on a journey through the world. Apparently, God has promised to do for all of us something that we could not do for ourselves. God has promised through the life of Jesus Christ, life eternal for us. But it's not just about eternal life. It's about you and me being partners in the kingdom's work. That the kingdom of God is now, folks. It's not in the future. It is now. It always has been now. And we are to live into that, and we are to be living sacrifices as Christ has been for all the world. And God really does love us to the point that he was willing to do exactly what he did. And that's why when we eat the bread and we drink from the cup, we become close to Jesus Christ. We not only remember that night when he was in the upper room over 2,000 years ago, but we also recognize his death. But we don't just say, okay, it's a meal of memorial. We say it's a meal of coming because he's coming again. And we anticipate the coming of Christ. And therefore, when we check and we eat the meal, we know the forgiveness of God is upon us. But we are also seeing a foretaste of the coming kingdom, the kingdom that's there. Some have likened this meal to a birthday party. And they've said that it's like a big present that we get to open. And, and, and with that, we should have many happy returns. And I think that Sunday worship is the significance of the meaning of that. Because every Sunday that we come together in worship, or any time we come together in worship, it is the Lord's day. It is a day of victory, that Christ was Christus victorious over the cross. 
and that Christ did not die, but he lives, and that the plans that the world had to destroy the Son of God did not happen, but that Jesus Christ continues to live. And it means that his death wasn't a failure, as everyone thought. It was victory. He faced death. He beat it. He took the worst that the world had to offer, and he came out on top. And somehow in the middle of that, he took everything that is bad and uh, and rancorous about you and me, and things that we would never tell anybody else about us, he's taken those things, and he has destroyed that with his death. And he has promised to give us new life. So when we eat the bread and we drink from the cup, we experience his holy forgiveness. In today's complicated and confused world, you and I are bombarded every day by all kinds of symbols And the symbols today that we are bombarded with are doing nothing but creating division and and, and causing us to be in a life of chaos. But we have to remember something. The symbols with the most unifying and transformative power are not symbols found in flags or national anthems or kneeling on the football field. The symbols with the most unifying and transformative power instead are found right here in bread and in the juice of this cup.